Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. When I see a flag or a bumper sticker or a t-shirt with a certain logo on it, which makes me really excited. Um, And actually, I didn't plan this at all, didn't prep it, but our own Josh Simons in the back in the tech booth. I came in this morning, and he's wearing it on his shirt. Didn't say a word to him. It's this logo uh, right here, the Florida, the Florida Gator logo, the University of Florida. And the reason I get so excited about that, it's my alma mater, right? So what I realized that when I'm thinking, when I, I usually will make conversation about it and try to figure out, well, what's this person's connection to our great university, What I'm really getting at when I'm asking that question, though, I realize is, do we have a common heritage? Do we have a shared heritage? There's something powerful about a shared heritage, right? Some of you maybe feel that when you meet somebody who's from Wisconsin like you are, um, or maybe somebody uh, who was a military veteran like you are, uh, somebody who was in your same sorority. There's something powerful about that shared heritage, and I guess what I'm wondering this morning is, what if there was an ultimate version of that? In other words, that connection that we feel with somebody, we find out that they went to the same summer camp growing up that we did. What if those types of feelings of connection to a shared heritage is ultimately meant to point us to an ultimate shared heritage? I actually think that our text today suggests something like that. Would you turn with me to Psalm 87? Psalm 87, um, you want to be there as we walk through this together. A little reminder that this summer we are looking at the so-called Psalms of Zion. These are Psalms that uh, some scholars have looked at and grouped together talking about this idea of Zion. Now, Zion isn't a word that we use all the time, so week after week we've been trying to uh, do a little refresher on what Zion is when the Bible talks about that. Um, Zion is God's people in God's place experiencing God's presence. That's how we've been trying to boil down the biblical data on that. And week after week we've been seeing these psalms that celebrate this Zion. Now, usually... In scripture and in the Psalms in particular, when Zion is talked about, it's connected to one particular earthly location. That's Jerusalem in Israel. Um, However, today we're going to see a Psalm in Psalm 87 that is talking about that same Zion, and there's still Jerusalem references here. However, what's envisioned in Psalm 87 includes people from all sorts of other nations, outside of Jerusalem, even outside of Israel. I want you to take a look at that as I read this one more time. I've heard it read uh, once already in this service, but I'm going to read it once more. And uh, listen for that as you read along with me. The many, many nations, a multinational family of people included in Zion. This is Psalm 87, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God, Selah. 
Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there, Selah. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. That's the word of the Lord. Now, you saw the word Selah twice in that text, right? So that tells us this scripture text, this psalm has three sections. And uh, we're going to label those sections, the God of Zion, the people from Zion, and the celebration in Zion. And we'll walk through those three in turn. First, the God of Zion. And what we're going to see in the first three verses is that the glorious God of Zion makes Zion itself glorious. The glorious God of Zion makes Zion itself glorious. And that's going to have profound implications, actually, for us as a church. Um, I want to make sure that you didn't miss it. Earlier in the service or earlier this summer, we realized, right, that, that our own uh, Robbie and Maggie have written a song to go along with this sermon series. It's called Glorious Things. If you have spoken, we, we uh, read it a few minutes ago. This psalm, Psalm 87, is the psalm that, that those words originally based on when John Newton wrote them before Robbie and uh, Maggie reworked it. Uh, verse 3 is where that title comes from. Question, though. Glorious things of you are spoken. Glorious things of whom are spoken. Who is that talking about? Would you look with me again at verse 3? You might be like, well, I'm in church, right? So the answer is God. Um, but actually... The psalmist tells us, doesn't he, who he's talking about? Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. In other words, this psalm isn't exactly, precisely praising the glories of the God of Zion. It's more directly praising the glories of Zion itself. And Robbie laid that out for us earlier in the summer as he explained this psalm. Um, but if this psalm is directly it, not directly praising the glories of God, but instead praising the glories of Zion, we want to ask the question, what makes Zion glorious? What makes Zion glorious? And we do a little brainstorming, right? So we look at verse 1. Um, we see the holy mount. We see mountains mentioned there. And so we think maybe, maybe that's what makes Zion glorious. Jerusalem is founded on mountains. Um, so maybe that's what makes it glorious. But has anybody ever been to Denver? You ever been to Denver? Yeah. Denver, the mountains that Denver is built on are twice as high as the mountains that Jerusalem is built on. So unless we want to say that Denver is twice as glorious as ancient Jerusalem because the mountains are twice as high, we start to think about maybe it's not quite exactly the mountains themselves that make Zion glorious. So then we look at verse 2. Maybe it's the gates. The architecture. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Maybe it's these gates. Um, now, don't get me wrong. The gates of Jerusalem are pretty cool. Um, but lots of other cities have built cool gates over human history as well, right? Has anybody ever seen pictures or been to the Forbidden City in Beijing, China? Um, those are pretty glorious gates. I think you see what I'm getting at. I'm not convinced that... God sees Zion as glorious because of the things that we see as glorious in cities. The mountain range, the architecture. I think the glory of Zion is a different sort of glory. And so I'm seeing three things here in verses 1 through 3 that do indeed make Zion glorious. First, that God himself founded Zion. 
God himself founded it, according to verse 1. It's the city he founded. In other words, Zion's history is part of what makes the city glorious. And we understand that. Back about 20 years ago now, um, Mark McGuire hit his 70th home run. Uh, Some of you remember that. That ball that he hit out of that park. Think about that. So it's rubber wrapped in thread, wrapped in hide. $6 Major League Baseball paid for that ball. But then Mark McGuire hit it out of that park over a fence. And suddenly that ball that was $6 became glorious. $3 million glorious last time it was sold. Why was it why did it become so glorious? It became so glorious because of its history, because it was the ball that Mark McGuire hit over that fence for his 70th home run. Zion, there's something similar there. It's not an inherently glorious city in and of itself, uh, sort of run-of-the-mill in a lot of ways. However, when a city is established and founded by God himself, when God himself establishes it as his worship center, that city becomes glorious. So it's history that God founded it makes it glorious. What else makes it glorious is that God loves it. Verse 2, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. This is God's electing love. The sort of love that's talked about in the scripture is having no real reason besides that he says, I choose to set my love on whom I choose to set my love. That's why adoption is talked about so often in scripture as a metaphor, right? That, That we've got this loving father who chose to invite us into his family, not because we were deserving of that love, not because we were particularly lovable people, but just because he chose to set his love on us. It's the same way with Zion. There's lots of cities in Israel. That's what verse 2 is talking about when it says all the dwelling places of Jacob. But God set his love on this one particular city above all others. Final reason, verse 3, God put his name on Zion. You see it in verse 3? It's called City of God. Zion gets called the City of God. It's like when friends come to visit uh, from out of town, uh, sometimes drive them by Michael Jordan's old house right? Um, That house is big and beautiful, obviously, but there are a lot of big and beautiful houses around here. It wouldn't maybe warrant more than uh, a raise of the eyebrow under normal circumstances, right? But when you say, oh, but this is the house Michael Jordan lived in, or they notice it because there's a huge 2-3 on the gates, um, then it becomes something that's awe-inspiring, right? This was Michael Jordan's house, and it's the same way with Zion, Zion is just a city until God says this is the city of God. Summary. Zion is special, but it's only special because of the God who chose to make it special. You've hung with me during this. Now I want to get to the the implications. I think they're massive for us as a church. And let me just review why this has anything to do with us as a church. Remember, we've been saying over and over, Zion is God's people and God's place, experiencing God's presence. And so we've been showing in Scripture how sometimes that can refer to ancient Jerusalem here on earth. Sometimes it can refer to, in Scripture, Jesus Christ, the ultimate meeting place between God and his people. Sometimes it can refer to the heavenly Jerusalem that's to come. That's going to be our ultimate Zion when all these promises about Zion come true. But here and now... One of the most immediate reference for us in Scripture, the New Testament applies these Zion passages to the church, to us, God's people, gathering God's place, experiencing God's presence. So I want to just take a moment here at the end of this first point to talk about how this applies to us as a church. These first three verses, what they have to do with us. I mean, these first three verses have something to say to us, particularly that we are glorious. 
And it may not feel that way all the time, especially when we've got people that we thought were friends who then uh, get on social media and write about people like us as narrow-minded bigots, and it comes as a surprise. It can hurt. We sometimes feel exactly the opposite of a glorious people. Sometimes it feels like we're the scum of the earth. However, no matter what it seems like or feels like at any given moment, Psalm 87 and so many other scriptures say that the rock-solid truth about us is that we are a glorious people. In the eyes of the only one whose opinion really ultimately matters about us. And not only that, but one day, this God will make sure that we are seen to be glorious. We will be revealed to all creation as glorious and will be seen as such. Um, Summary, here and now, glorious things are not spoken of us very often, the way verse 3 talks about. However, one day, all creation will marvel at Zion, at the church, at, God's, at Christ's pure, spotless bride. Um, so we're glorious, but the flip side of that is, from these first three verses, we're not glorious because we're just really morally upright people, right? We're not glorious because we're attractive in all the ways the world finds people attractive. We're a glorious people for the three reasons that were already laid out about Zion. We're glorious because God established us, his people. All around the North Shore right now, foundations are being poured. It's construction season. The quality of those foundations will play a large part in determining how long those structures stand. It's the same way with us. It's because God established us and poured our foundation that makes us have an unshakable, lasting glory. Second, God set his special affection on us. He loves us with an electing love. Um, It's like there's a sense in which I love everyone in this church, but I don't love everyone in this church in the same sense in which I love my wife. It's the same with our God, and it's the same with our God and his relationship to Zion. Sure, he loves everyone, but he doesn't love everyone with the same electing love that he loves his people, his special chosen people, Zion. And third, we're glorious because we're the people identified with God. Just as in verse 3, one city is called the city of God. We are the people identified with God. He's put his name on us and called us the people of God, and no other people on earth can claim that. So what you're seeing here, I think, and what, what I was struck by in looking through these first three verses is even in a psalm that technically is praising us, Zion, It's not really about us. It's really about the God who makes us glorious. And any glory that we have is the sort of glory of moonlight, right? It's just a reflected light that comes from the true source of glory. Uh, That's our first section, the God of Zion. Second, the people of Zion. We're ready to go to that now. What we're going to see in the verses 4 through 6 is that Zion is the birthplace of a multinational people of God. Zion is the birthplace of a multinational people of God. Um, first day of school's coming up. Anybody excited for that? Not, not many people. Some parents are excited. Um, anybody dreading that? Yeah, yeah, it's okay. 
One thing that I actually, you know, as much as I dreaded going back to school, the first day of school every year, the one thing I was like really kind of, it was kind of fun on the first day is when your teachers call roll uh, and you find out who's in your class. Oh, I've heard of that person before. Oh, that's who they are. Oh, oh, that person's in my class. And you get to see, uh, it's kind of exciting to see who's in your class. Here in verses four through six, we have kind of like a heavenly roll call going on, um, starting in verse four. And I have to believe that the original readers of Psalm 87 would have been shocked by some of the names that show up on that roll call. I mean, these are some of the enemies, some of the oppressors, some of the enticers of God's people historically. And now they're showing up in Psalm 87 as on the heavenly roll call. Take a look at it. Rahab, that's not the Rahab from Can- not the woman from Canaan, different spelling. This is uh, another name for Egypt, Egypt who took God's people into slavery. Babylon, who took God's people into exile. Philistia, who was a constant thorn in the sides of God's people. On and on. And now they're showing up on the roll call in heaven. And then verses 5 and 6 take it past the nations down to the individual level. And says, of all these people from Egypt, people from Tyre, people from Philistia, people from Babylon. It will be said of some people from all of those places, they were born in Zion. They were born in Zion. This one was born in Zion. That one was born in Zion. Um, and if you're reading Psalm 87, having read everything that comes before it in Scripture, you'd realize just how shocking this would have been to the original readers. Um, the history here, there's, there's, some, there's certainly some exceptional moments in the Old Testament in which people from enemy nations, so to speak, end up putting their faith in the one true God and being used by him for his glory. We think about Ruth, who was from Moab, but then became the grandmother of the greatest king in Israel's history. Uh, We think about Rahab, not this Rahab, but the other Rahab, right? The Canaanite woman, a prostitute who puts her faith in the one true God and ends up in the hall of fame of faith, so to speak, in Hebrews 11. Um, So there's, there's exceptional examples like that, but even in those cases like Ruth and Rahab, those people were not born in Jerusalem. They weren't born anywhere in Israel. They were quite decisively born in foreign nations. Yet Psalm 87 is somehow conceiving that some of these people from these faraway lands, it will be said of them that they were born in Zion. What could this possibly be talking about? I don't know that there are many interpretive options besides that if it's not talking about the physical exit from the birth canal, this must be talking about some other sort of birth, some second birth, right? Maybe a spiritual birth. And actually, that's not a foreign idea to the Old Testament. Um, I'll have to write more about it in the highlights because we don't have time, but when Jesus starts talking to Nicodemus in John 3 about being born again, he's amazed that he says, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of God's people and you don't understand what I'm talking about. He's amazed because the Old Testament in many, many ways points to a second birth, an experience, a decisive experience after your first birth in which something is revolutionized and changed in your life. I'll write more about that this week, but here's the bottom line question for us about second birth, the birth that's talked about here in Psalm 87. Everyone has experienced the first birth. How do we get to experience the second birth? How does one experience that? So I'm searching this text for clues on that. And I'm looking at verse 4. Who is included on this roll call in verse 4? What sort of nations? What sort of people? 
Who's included is those who know me. Do you see that in verse 4? It's those who know God. In other words, once we come to know God, that's when our names get recorded on this heavenly roll call as having been born in Zion, even though all of our birth certificates say something very different. Our second birthplace is Zion. For all of us who have experienced the second birth, in the sense that our heritage now becomes Zion. Our mother is Zion. Our birthplace is Zion the second time around. So, two questions applying this to our lives on our second point. Zion being the birthplace of multinational people of God. First question is for everyone. Have you experienced the second birth? Have you yet experienced that? And I'm not talking about the time when you said, you know what, I need to start cleaning my life up and go to church. That's not the second birth, right? Life with God doesn't begin by embarking on a program of moral improvement. Life with God, the sort of life with God laid out in the scriptures, begins with a second birth, a decisive turning, something new happens. To use scriptural language, um, what happens is, yes, there's moral improvement, that ends up ensuing, but that moral improvement comes out of a heart that has fundamentally been changed. A heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh. God himself and the person of the Holy Spirit is now living inside of me. That's unbelievable. Uh, I've, I'm filled with gratitude because my status has been changed from an enemy of God to being a child of God. Right? And out of all that, that's where the moral improvement happens. It's an incredible experience, and so I just want to ask again, have you experienced the second birth? If you haven't, today could be the day. There's no reason to wait. The second question I want to ask, though, on the second point is for those who have already experienced the second birth, and the question is this, have you embraced the multinationality of the people of God? Have you wholeheartedly embraced what this psalm and so many other scriptures lay out the multinational character of Zion, the people of God. Now, if you're like me, when I see that question, I say, I think I have, but can you ask me some more concrete questions so I can determine whether I really have embraced that? Um, And yes, I can. I'm going to ask three questions here that maybe will help us consider this bigger question about whether we have embraced the multinationality of Zion. The first question is about immigrants specifically Christian immigrants. Uh, And more than half of the immigrants coming into the United States every year are Christians, do identify as Christian. Here's a question. For you, in your own heart, for me, in my own heart, do I see the Christian immigrant to the United States fundamentally as an outsider because they came from another land? Or do I first and foremost fundamentally see them as a sister or brother in the faith because we have a shared heritage in Zion? How do I fundamentally see them at my heart of hearts? That question, I think, gets to the root of whether my first birth or my second birth is really where I derive my identity from. Second question has to do with the El Paso shooter, actually. This El Paso shooter, if you haven't read about it, um, put out a manifesto before he went on his rampage in Walmart talking about how he wanted to kill specifically Latino people because he uh, saw them as people who were, quote, invading our country. 
and who were, quote, uh, replacing, trying to replace white people who, uh, who's, who are rightfully here. So my question is, at what point do you believe the El Paso shooter went wrong? Option A, do you believe that he went wrong when he took those beliefs and acted on them with violence? Is that where he went wrong? Or do you believe that those actual beliefs that motivated him to do what he did were wrong in and of themselves? If you don't believe that the beliefs that he held, that he laid out in that manifesto, were wrong in and of themselves, then you've missed what Scripture lays out in terms of the multinationality of God's people, um, the God who shows no favoritism, and of the idolatry that is our human tendency to elevate our tribe or clan over others. Third question, a little bit lighter, who are you reading? What are you reading? What sorts of authors are you reading? Who, uh, if you look at your shelf, the books that are there, if you look at your wish list, the books that are there, um, the articles you read, if they're all written by people of your same ethnicity, then you may be missing out on some of the richness that God has for us in the multinationality of his people. I'll just give you one example. I've read many, many books that uh, were written by majority culture, white American Christian authors about the topic of shame, or at least they touched on the topic of shame. Almost every time I read those books, they all have a very negative view of shame, right? Shame is something bad, it's something to be avoided, never shame people. Uh, thank goodness God came to remove our shame, right? That's kind of the gist. Then I get into conversation and get to read a book written by our own Dr. Tilly Lau, who's raised in an honor-shame culture, which I was not raised in. And he's able to raise a flag and say, hey, let's think more about this. Let's look back at the scriptures about this. Maybe there's a redemptive place for shame. Maybe there's a sort of shame that is good. Maybe it's a sort of shame that can be used positively for moral formation, right? We had that class this spring talking about that. He was able to show me in that book things that I was blind to before because when he opens up the scriptures with his cultural background, he's able to see things there that I just miss from my own cultural background. So what are you reading? You can embrace the multinationality of God's people by exposing yourself to things more broadly. We could obviously ask many more questions. There's the important question of who are you spending time with? Who are you seeking to learn from face to face? But we'll leave it at these three questions for now. And let me just remind us of just a few statistics, actually, before we move on to section three. Just because from time to time, I think it's important to remind ourselves of a, of, of a bigger perspective of what's true. Um, many uh, statisticians think that by 2050, 40% of all the Christians on earth will be in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, this, this isn't, it's never, you know, it's never been a white person's religion uh, and doesn't look like it will be anytime soon. Even at this moment, if you added up all the Christians in North America and Western Europe, together they only make up 30, 38% of all the Christians on earth. Um, here in America, the demographic of people most rapidly departing from the church are white people. All of these are just reminders that Man, Westerners have never owned this faith, and we don't now. 
And so it's a call for us to remind ourselves and to ask ourselves from time to time, have I really embraced the multinationality of God's people, Zion? We've now walked through verses 1 through 3. The God of Zion who makes Zion glorious. We've walked through verses 4 through 6, how Zion is the birthplace of the multinational city of God. Now we're ready for the final section. It's just one verse, verse 7. Uh, in which we see a celebration in Zion, namely that the nations join in joyful praise to Zion as their source of refreshment. Their source of refreshment. You see it there in verse 7, singers and dancers. I want to ask just the like who, what, when, where questions about these singers and dancers as we investigate this text. First we'll ask where. Verses 4 to 6 already told us that. These people are not just from Israel. They're from the roll call of the nations. Those are the singers and dancers. What are they singing? Uh, it looks like the refrain there in verse 7 is, All my springs are in you. So we've got the who, we've got the where. Uh, what about when? Some scholars suggest that this psalm would have been sung at the major festival times when people from all the nations were gathering to Jerusalem, like at the Passover, for example. What about the how, though? When I'm looking at verse 7 and I see these dancers here, I'm thinking that... Uh, that suggests joyful song, like the sort of whole-bodied type of joyful song. Do you know what I mean? Like, the scriptures consistently encourage the full use of our bodies in worship. The last two Psalms, 149 and 150, tell us to dance before the Lord. Second Samuel 6 has that story of David dancing with all his might before the Lord as he came into the city and, and when someone, um, when one of his wives... Uh, criticized him for that, said he was being undignified as king to do that. Um, she was disciplined by God for it. We see in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2, to the command, particularly to men, to raise our hands in prayer in the gathered assembly. Time and time again, the scriptures speak this way and encourage the use of our bodies in worship. And I just think that's all worth considering if we're the sort of people who say, ah, you know, that's not really me. I'm just not, I'm not really outwardly expressive, right? Now hear me. Uh, there are differences between cultures. There are differences between personality types. I'm not advocating for some sort of cookie-cutter type emoting that needs to happen. That's not the way it is. However, if I never heed the biblical call to dance before the Lord if I never obey the biblical command to raise my hands in prayer in the gathered assembly, if I never move my body in worship the way the Bible so often talks about that happening, I need to think about that that may be less about my personality and my culture, and it may actually be more about my delight in the Lord, or lack thereof. That's especially true for, you know, I've, I've had this conversation with some people who said, ah, that's just not me. That's not my personality type. I'm more reserved. Great. Then we watch a football game together, and they're jumping out of their seat, hands up, yelling at the top of their lungs, and I'm like, if football is able to produce a sort of delight in you that helps you to overcome your natural aversion to emoting, how does God not produce that same delight or greater, right? It's worth considering. I'm, I'm talking to myself here because I, I have to remind myself to consider that from time to time um, as I think about my own expressiveness in worship. 
We've asked several questions about these singers and dancers. I want to ask now one more. Why? Why are they singing and dancing? It seems to me in verse 7 that they're so jubilant because they've found springs. Springs being sources of life and refreshment. These aren't people who are going through the motions of gathering together and sipping some sort of stale water together. They found something that they perceive to be vibrant and life-giving. And so I need to ask the same question here that we asked back in verse 3. Who is you in verse 7? Where are these springs that they're finding? All my springs are in you. All my springs are in whom? And again, because we're in church, our knee-jerk reaction is to say, our springs are in God. Problem, you here is feminine in Hebrew. So what the psalmist, in other words, is really saying is, all my springs are in you, Zion. Again, like he has been in this whole psalm, the psalm is written not directly to God, but to God's people, to Zion. So, um, that's got implications for us, right? Um, It's not to say that all our springs aren't in God. Of course they are. But what it's saying is that we access those springs in Zion among God's people. When I'm thinking about applying it to the church, one thing just comes to mind. Uh, It's important that we're here doing this together. It's important to prioritize gathering together in worship like we are this morning. Um, If this is true, that all my springs are in you, speaking of Zion, if all of our springs are in Zion, which is, again, God's people in God's place, experiencing God's presence, then that ought to produce a desperation in me. I ought, that ought to make me so thirsty for this experience that I prioritize it above just about anything else, and I want to make sure I never miss it except in the most extreme situations, right? That's what some of you I know get this, and some of you have told me you even, uh, when you're out of town on vacation, you even find a church to make sure to go to on Sunday mornings because you get this, and you don't want to miss it. Um, if this is where I get access to the springs, the fresh stuff, the, the living water, then I want to get that. I want to get that new life, and I'm going to go get it whenever I can. Um, you've talked to people before, so have I, who say something like, um, if you just get to a blank slide there, um, who say something like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not big on organized religion. And so uh, I don't really need to go to church. I don't go to church. It's not really my thing, right? Uh, we've had conversations like that with folks. And if that's you this morning, um, first of all, let me just say I get it. I really do. You've seen people be hurt by the church. You may have been deeply hurt by churches in the past. You may have come to church at some point hoping to find these springs. You were hoping that this would be the place you found life, something living, and instead you looked around and just saw cold, lifeless death. We're sorry for what you've experienced. Um, We get it. However, I do want to say, bailing on church altogether would be a mistake. I really, really deeply believe that because of what we're seeing here in Psalm 87. When I was in seminary, I saw this quote, um, from a third century African theologian named Cyprian, one of the great fathers of our faith in the early centuries. And it shocked me when I first heard it. I didn't know what to do with it. Here's what he said. The one who does not have the church's mother cannot have God as father. The one who does not have the church's mother cannot have God 
as father. And when I read that for the first time, I was like, no, that's too extreme. Uh, That can't be right. But what I've found since then is that many theologians, many pastors over the centuries since then, in many, many places since then, have looked to this quote from Cyprian and said, yeah, that's exactly spot on. That's the way it is. And the reason is because so many scriptures do what Psalm 87 does here and lay out that the present-day Zion, the church, is meant to play a motherly role in our lives. How so? Well, the church is meant to nourish us, to strengthen us, to grow us up into maturity, right? Um, And so to say, oh, no, no, I don't need the church is something like the young child who gets mad at his mother and says, I don't need you anymore. I'm going to run away from home and tries to strike out on his own, right? It's incredibly arrogant for us to go that direction when the church is meant to be mothering us. That's why for the life of the church for 2,000 years, there's been very little to no category in the minds of most for someone having God as father, but not having the church as a mother. Because all of our springs are in God, but God gives particular access to those springs in Zion, in his people, in his place, with his presence. So now we've walked through the whole text. We've seen how God makes Zion glorious. We've seen how Zion is the birthplace, the mother of a multinational family of God. We've seen the nations praising Zion as a source of refreshment. We're ready to synthesize it all into a big idea. And our uh, big idea is about to be up on the screen. Um, It's this. Let us praise the Most High who creates a new people out of every nation on earth. Let's praise the Most High who creates a new people out of every nation on earth. We're going to do just that before we leave here. We're going to praise him one more time. Uh, But let me just remind you of where we started today and bring it back there to finish. We started out talking about this experience of a shared heritage. When you find out somebody went to the same school you went to growing up, um, when you find out somebody's in the same branch of the military as you, there's a power, a connection there in your shared heritage. And we asked the question, what if there's an ultimate version of that? And I think what we've seen here in Psalm 87 is that there is. We have an ultimate shared heritage, those of us who are in Christ. Even... If we pulled out our birth certificates right now and 200 of us held up our birth certificates, they might say 150 different cities that we were born in. There's a truth, a deep, deep truth that in a real sense, those of us who are in Christ have the same father, God, the same mother, the church, and the same birthplace, Zion, when it comes to our second birth. And as much as I love getting to come across somebody who's wearing a Florida Gator thing and we can talk about what it's like to step over alligators on your way to class on campus and not many people have shared that experience so it's special to have that connection. It doesn't compare at all to the connection that we have with somebody who has experienced that second birth that we've experienced because that connection goes to the very, very deepest parts of what's in our hearts. It's a new people of God that he's created from many nations, all who have experienced the common heritage of a second birth. But this new people wouldn't be possible without the work of Jesus Christ, who paid the price to purchase this people 
from among all the nations. And the price he paid was his own blood, his life. When he laid his life down voluntarily on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago, and on that cross he was paying the price that you and I could never pay, taking the punishment for sin that you and I deserve to take, so that we could be reunited with God. And when he rose again from the dead three days later, he inaugurated a new era, a new era in which this multinational family of faith would come together as one, be united from, out from all of the nations together in worship of the one true God. So I'm going to pray in a moment, and then we're going to sing a song that hits on a lot of these themes that we talked about in our text, uh, while this song also lifts up that one, Jesus Christ, who made all of this possible. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in Christ you've made it possible for us in this room and beyond. From all the nations on earth, despite our great differences in culture and personality, to nevertheless be united in the common deep, deep, deep heritage of having a second birth in you. With you as our Father, and the church as our mother, and Zion as our birthplace. Lord, help that to be the deepest part of our identity. Help that to be so core to our being that no other aspect of our identity rivals that or takes its place as an idol attempting to dethrone you. Lord, help us to be a people who manifest that love and multinational unity with one another and help us to bring glory to your name in the process. For we are your people, for your own possession, who live for your glory as uh, reflecting the glory that was given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.